Tonight is about the doctrine of baptisms. Hebrews chapter 6, I'll read once again. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms. So the first thing you will notice in the scripture is that baptisms is in plural, right? Which is um, interesting and something worth noting. Some other translations translates this as washings, which um, points the scripture to the Old Testament washings that were recommended in the, in the law of Moses. But like you've seen, what we're dealing with is the doctrine of Christ, right? So Christ did not teach about washings. Christ taught about baptisms. Part of why some translations have washings instead of baptisms is that they struggle to understand why it is baptisms. And you can understand why some people will struggle to understand why it is baptisms, right? Because um, some, some denominations want to do away with the concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as as an ongoing, present tense, continuous experience that everyone who comes to Christ can come into. But baptisms is a better translation of the root Greek word here, which is baptismo. If I said that correctly, baptismo. Baptisms is a better translation. So the first thing we note here is that there are baptisms in Christ. My question is what are these baptisms or which ones do you know? I know the baptism that is by water, water. Okay. Um, that's the John's baptism. And then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you know two baptisms. Two. Yeah. But you said the first one is the baptism of John. Yes. Okay, so a believer is supposed to be baptized with the baptism of John. Well, I mean, if Jesus did it, why not? I'm baptized in water, so. Okay. What what makes yeah. it the baptism of John? Well, he was the one, because he mentioned, he said, I baptize you with water, but he that is coming after me, you know, and then he started describing what Jesus would baptize them with. So that's why I felt like, I feel like, you know, John um, described his own baptism in that verse when he said, I baptize with water, but, and I think Jesus also said the same thing about John when he was testifying of him. So that's why I think John, uh, okay. I don't, I can't remember the verses, but. Yeah, you, you have the right idea, but I just want to show you something quickly from what you just said. In Acts chapter 19, and the Bible says, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> and he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying that they should believe on him who would come after him, that, that is on Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So Stephanie, do you see a problem with your first definition of baptism? Yeah, I'm not seeing like two different baptisms here. One is baptism of the repentance, one is baptism in the name of Jesus. So, so as far as Paul is concerned, the baptism of John is over. Mm. It's not for believers. Really? Oh, wow. Okay. Didn't you see that he, he baptized them again? You know, you're not supposed to be baptized two times. Well, we'll come to the details of all of this. Wow. So okay. it, mean, it means that this baptism was not the baptism into Christ. But I just wanted to show you that to bring clarity to your definition, that you're right, that there is the baptism of water, but that baptism is into Jesus Christ, right? But that one, okay, 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 thank you. We will see all of that shortly. Um, okay, I see some things in the chat. Um, baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism of water, baptism of fire. Okay, so that's that's good. We've been able to distill down at least three baptisms um, in the New Testament. So let's let's get started. Can you read from us and um, for us, Terence, Matthew chapter three, from verse one to verse nine. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 to 9. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, then Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the regions around the, around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw, sorry, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear, therefore, therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance, and do not, know, do not think to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Amen. Yeah, can you please continue to verse 12? Okay. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptized you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Terence. So you can see that 
at least three baptisms are listed here, right? There is the baptism that is unto repentance, the baptism of water. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there is the baptism of fire. In verse 11, it says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, in the New Testament, the baptism of John is the first place where we see the principle of baptism applied in the New Testament. John was saying that his purpose was to prepare the way of Christ. He was supposed to prepare the heart of people to receive Jesus when, they, when, when he came. And he asked them to repent of their sins, like we saw what repentance was, because the kingdom of God is about to be revealed upon the face of the earth. And then when they repented, he asked them to be baptized with water to, to complete that cycle of repentance. The first thing I want to say is that what Hebrews is dealing with in Hebrews, or part of what Hebrews is dealing with in Hebrews chapter six is the complete process of a normal Christian birth, right? Um, you know that you are born of God, you are born again of God. What I want to put to you tonight is that according to the scripture, that process of being born of God is a, is a multi-step process. It's at least a four-step process according to Jesus, according to the scriptures, right? We've seen that there needs to be a repentance from dead works, right? Then there needs to be an exercising of faith towards God. And so it's not enough to repent, right? Like we saw all of that two weeks ago or three weeks ago, repentance as beautiful as it is, um, it's, only, it's, it's the negative side of coming to God. The positive side of coming to God is that you exercise faith for justification towards God. But you see, <laughs> repenting and exercising faith is not all that it takes to complete your birth into the kingdom of God. And we're going to see more of that because there are baptisms that you have to go through in order for that birth to be completed. And this is according to scripture. So you have to be baptized in water and you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. In John chapter three, verse five, just so that we hit the nail on the head already before we go back to Matthew, the Bible says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the kingdom that is to come, the kingdom for which John was preparing the way, right? So John was not offering access into the kingdom. John was preparing the way into the kingdom. The kingdom for which John was preparing the way, the entrance into that kingdom is that you must be born again. And then Nicodemus asked him in verse four, how? Can a man be born or born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5 is my emphasis. Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water. Now the, now the correct Greek rendering here is unless one is born 
out of water, right, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So that um, the process of the new birth, it's not just about repenting from sins and exercising faith towards God, but there needs to be a birth out of water and then there needs to be a birth in the spirit for that process to be complete. I'm going to take your questions about that shortly, but it's important for us to note that this is the primary teaching of Jesus, that when Nicodemus asked him, how is one born again? He says, you have to be born out of water and out of the spirit. The question then is why out of water, right? That's because out of water is a question of baptism, right? Why out of water? Why do we need to be born out of water? Well, there are many ways you can tackle the problem, but, let, but let's start with the things that water or the main thing that water practically does and the thing that water achieved in the baptism of John, right? Water was supposed to achieve a, a physical cleansing, right? A physical washing away of sin. And that's why when John preached repentance, he said, I need you to come into the, into the water as a symbol. John's baptism was not a sacrament. We're going to come to what that word means. It was a symbol, as a symbol that your sins have been washed away. But if you look at the word baptist um, or bap baptism as used in Matthew chapter 3, the Greek word is baptizo, right, which means to submerge which means to immense, which immerse, which means to dip. If the translators had used the actual translation of the word, we wouldn't be calling him John the Baptist, actually. We'll be calling him John the Deeper, the one who dips people into things. So that definition is necessary for you to understand what baptism is and what baptism is not. And the question then is, okay, fine. If, if, if you're supposed to be washed with water, why do you then have to be dipped into it? Baptism was, is also supposed to represent a burial, right? That not only have you been washed, not only have your sins been washed away, but you have actually died to sin, to the principle of sin. And you see, in baptism, you are not only immersed into the water, you are also brought out of, out of the water. So that means that not only have you died to sin, you have risen to a newness of life. And that experience is a critical component of what it means to be called a Christian, is a critical um, component of what it means to, to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means that I have been washed of my sins, right? And I have died to the sinful life. I've died to the sinful nature. And now I'm living for Christ. I'm living for him. I'm living out of a new life. It's a, it's a powerful representation, or representation is not the right English term. It's a powerful identification with Christ that I have died with him and I have risen with him. And the other question that arises then is, you know, why water, right? What is so significant about water? Well, it's very clear that because, it's very clear that baptism, that even though water is a physical element, right? In baptism, God uses it for a spiritual significance. And essentially in Christianity, when we talk about a sacrament, that's what it means that 
something that is material or physical, a deed, an object, an action that is physical, can have spiritual implication. Now, in Greek philosophy, this is obviously an unthinkable idea, right? Because, and most of our Western society has been influenced, greatly influenced by Greek philosophy. In Greek philosophy, there is a very clear separation of the material and the supernatural, of the physical and the spiritual. There is a sense, even in modern science, right? There's a sense in which nature is a closed system, right? That cannot be infiltrated by external forces, which is why modern science completely rejects the idea of the supernatural because it does not fit into the closed observable system that they say that nature is. So if you live long enough in the world system, starting from Greek philosophy, you would, you would make a clear distinction between physical and spiritual, right? Um, but this is not how the Hebrews um, in the Old Testament understood life, understood the makeup of the earth. And this is certainly not how the New Testament understands it. The New Testament understands the physical and the spiritual to be so woven together, right, that one can, can overlap into the other very easily. And this is how God designed it, because the same God who made the physical is the God who made the spiritual. And so he can make spiritual realities overlap together with physical ones anytime he pleases. And this is not a, a phenomenon, right? That is strange in scripture. Starting from the very first chapters of scripture, we see that God planted a physical tree in the garden of Eden, yet the partaking of that tree was going to have, was going to have eternal spiritual implications. So you see, <laughs> the tree was not just a symbol. <laughs> And this is one thing I wanted to know, that the baptism that is in Christ is not just a symbol. It's a sacrament. If it's a symbol, then it means it's optional. You know, you are just, you are just you know, proving that you're born again. No, that's not what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a reality. It's a sacrament. The same way a tree, the, um, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil was not a symbol. It was not symbolizing anything. It was a real tree. And God said that if you partake of that physical tree, something is going to happen to your spiritual condition, right? So that in God's idea of the universe, the spiritual and the physical are interwoven together, right? Do you remember the rod of Moses? <laughs> it was a physical rod, not a spiritual rod. But through that physical rod, God was going to work mighty miracles in Egypt and eventually part the Red Sea. So God used a physical thing, right? to establish a spiritual reality upon the face of the earth. And that's the same thing that happens in baptism, right? That in baptism, God uses the physical material, the physical matter of water to establish, to establish a spiritual reality, which is your complete separation or annihilation from death, from the world, from everything that is of the old life and your complete inclusion into Christ. So in essence, when Jesus was saying to Nicodemus that um, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He was saying to him that you are right that you cannot really be born again unless you die. So death has to occur in you first before a new life can germinate. And the way God achieved that was not by killing you, <laughs> right? 
because if he had killed you physically, then that would have been the end of the story. What he did was to institute the sacrament of baptism so that by dipping you into the water, it goes on record in the spirit that you're dead. Right? And that action separates you from the power of sin. It, it separates you from, from, from the power of the second death. It separates you from everything that is of Satan that chases after your soul. You know, for you, it, it is we Christians who underappreciate the significance of such physical sacraments because Satan himself is not under any illusions how powerful it is that a believer takes that steps, that step of becoming baptized. That's why he has done everything he can to convince the church that baptism is optional, right? Or to convince the church that we can baptize babies and only confirm them um, at a future age, right? So that they never really come to the place of baptizo, which is the which is the immersion of death. Right? Remember, baptism is not just for the washing away of sins, it is for a burial. So what it's what is meant here is that in baptism, we are identifying with Christ. We're identifying with him in his death and we're identifying with him in his resurrection, which is why Jesus insisted on being baptized, right? Because for Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice, for him to be the perfect offering for our sins, he had to be like us in every way. And for that to happen, he had to identify with us. What does it mean to, uh, to, to identify with someone? You know, the word identification is, is I'm using it in, a, in its legal terminology, right? If somebody, <laughs> if somebody commits a crime and then you identify yourself with him in that crime, you, you, I don't know how you want to do it, but you identify yourself with him in that crime. Every punishment, right, that is due him in the committing of that crime is also due you legally. So Jesus identified with us, first of all, by taking on human form. He identified with us by taking on human form. So he took on our flesh. He also identified with us by submitting himself to the baptism of John. Now, if there's anybody who didn't need a washing away of sin, it was Jesus himself. But Jesus said to John, let it be done like this, right? To fulfill all righteousness. Did you see that? Okay. We didn't get to that point where we looked at the baptism of Jesus. It's further down in Matthew chapter 3. But let it be done like this to fulfill all righteousness. By First of all, Jesus, by submitting himself to be baptized, he completely removed any excuse that anyone who is a, who says they're a Christian, who says they're a follower of Jesus has for not being baptized or for not wanting to be baptized. Hmm. Of course, Jesus was not being baptized for his sins, but he was baptized for righteousness sake. And what that means is that he wanted to identify with the sin of Israel because John's baptism was in the context of a nation that needed to repent because of the kingdom of God. And in submitting himself to that baptism, he was identifying himself uh, as saying, I identify with your sins because it's only in identification with their sins that he can now die for their sins, right? And of course, the ultimate act of identification was on the cross, right? So that 
he took our place. He identifies with our sins to the point where he lays down his life on the cross. Now, Jesus identifies with himself with us to make the way of salvation, right, open to you and I. And the way that we accept coming to salvation is by identifying with him, not just physically, but spiritually. And in baptism, which is a sacrament, both the physical identification, because baptism is not a secret thing, right? It's a very public declaration, both the physical and the spiritual dimensions of that identification are applied to you and I. So we identify with him in his death and we identify with him in his resurrection. Okay, I've said a lot and I want to pause here now to take your questions. I know I said some things that may have surprised you <laughs> um, or that you may have some reactions to or maybe some scriptures that are popping into your head based on the things I've said. So it'd be good to, to hear what you think if you have any thoughts or questions so far. Interesting that there's no question, right? How come there's no question? Because at least one thing I said should have elicited a question, right? Which is that, remember I said that the, the process that completes the Christian birth has to go through what Jesus described, right? not just the repentance from dead works or the expressing of faith towards God, but there has to be a, a birthing out of water and a birthing in the spirit for that process to be completed. I mean, I expected that to be pretty controversial, right? Because you can ask me, what does that mean? Does that mean I have to be baptized to be saved? Does that mean that those who are not baptized are not saved? How about the thief on the cross? Or maybe these are not questions for us so we can move on. Then, okay, I want to show us something in Romans chapter six, which Romans chapter six is where we see the principle of identification explained, right? Terence, can you read for us? Um, Romans chapter six, I would say from verse one to 11 or 13. I know it's a long read, but it's good for us to have the context of the entire chapter. Can you read Terence? All right. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin and grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died in sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also we also should walk in the newness of his life, of life, sorry. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, 
but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, he also, sorry, likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its last. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Terence. So I think what's like the language Paul uses in Romans chapter six is pretty clear, right? Paul is introducing to us what is the doctrinal principle of identification. And he starts by asking, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because in Romans chapter five, he has established, he had established the principle of grace as the antidote to the principle of death that was introduced into the human race by the sin of Adam. And he understood very clearly that the introduction of the principle of grace would elicit perhaps the thoughts in many, which it eventually did, that, okay, if there is grace, then we, then it is okay for us to continue in sin. Because in the previous chapter, Paul had said that where sin abounds, grace, the grace of God abounds even much more. And then he asks, so should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he's shocked that somebody can even think like this, right? So this shows you that not all questions that people ask you deserves a straight answer, right? So somebody may ask you, so are you saying that I must be baptized to be saved? The first thing with that question is that you need to be shocked by the question, right? Because the question is completely off place. So it's a similar question to this one, right? Shall we continue in sin that grace me about? He says, actually, this is not possible. Certainly not. Why is it not possible? He says that you died to sin. How did you die to sin? He's, he's mentioning baptism. So he's making the assumption that every reader he's writing to is baptized or is supposed to be baptized. It's, it's not even a debate, right? Whether or not they are supposed to be baptized. It's, it's a fundamental aspect of their salvation. He says, you died to sin. And how, how did you die to sin? You died to sin in baptism. Now, not only did you die to sin, you know, if, if you just died to sin, you would have just been, you would have just been, um, I don't know, <laughs> dead man walking, right? Or something like that. That's what John the Baptist recognized about his baptism. He recognized that hmm, it's not enough for me to baptize unto repentance. Because what I've done is that I've cleaned you and I've let you go. And like Jesus tells us, that kind of situation is very attractive to demons, actually, when you clean someone and let the person go just like that. So John recognized that, okay, these people are cleansed now. They have sorrow, but as they're, as they're going back to their house, before they even go to bed this night, it's likely that Satan will visit them and they will fall back into sin. And that is why he said that my baptism is not enough, that I indeed baptize you with water, but there's one who's coming after me. You're going to need his own baptism. And that's what's going to complete the cycle. So I don't only wash you, but I feel you. Next week, when we look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you realize that it has to be a feeling. A feeling for it to be a baptism, right? It has to be a submerging. It has to be a saturation for it to be a baptism. So not only 
um, did we die to sin in baptism? Verse 4 says, therefore, we're buried. So that's the language there of identification. Buried with him through baptism. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so. You see, this, this expression, even so, is one of the most beautiful expressions in, in, in the New Testament. It's telling you that so many things accrue to you. So many things are a possibility with you because you identify with Christ. Even so. We should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right. So he says, even so we should walk in newness of life because in, in baptism, you were not submerged into the water and left there. If not, the church will not have members. Right? You were submerged and you were brought back into a newness of life. And symbolically, you... You took off your wet clothes and you wore dry ones, representing a new life that you have been born into. Baptism itself is not representational. It is sacramental, right? It is, it is consequential in that sense. It is first consequential before it is symbolic in any, in, in, in any other sense, right? But of course, they, they, well, what, what I want to see from what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6 is, He's pointing out that baptism is a spiritual reality, but it's also a permanent reality. He had mentioned that earlier, right? That Christ has died and he's not going to die again, right? And instead he lives forever unto God. What that means is that you cannot be baptized two times. You should not be baptized two times. There is no greater expression of lack of faith than being baptized two times. It's not possible for you to die two times. It is completely against the preaching of the gospel that you die two times, right? You can only be baptized once. And this raises obviously a problem, right? Because I don't know what your experience was, but if you are like me, who got baptized quite early in your life, it didn't take long before you fell back into sin, right? Or into some of the most terrible sins that you were hugging on. I remember when I got baptized, everything was like, wow. It changed life, newness of life, walking with Jesus. And then I think it was like one week, two weeks, and then <laughs> the old man began to creep in again. Well, the first answer to that is that, is that the new birth is not completed merely by the baptism of water. And baptism of water by itself does not save anybody, right? Baptism of water is, is one out of four that makes for the whole process. There needs to be a, um, and there needs to be a repentance from dead works. There needs to be a confession of faith, a believing in the heart and confession of faith. Then there needs to be baptism of water. Then there needs to be baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then the cycle is complete. Right. So there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit without which the cycle is not complete. But Paul is also saying that, see, if you are baptized with Christ, then the only thing that is keeping you in sin is not your spiritual reality. It's rather your, your intellectual, your mental reality. It's about how you think and how you believe. That's why he says in verse 6, knowing this, right, that our old man was crucified with him. If you go into that water and you get baptized and you don't know what has happened to you, it's likely that sin will still overpower you. But Paul says you need to begin with a knowing. You know, for a long time, when I was growing up and I, stood, and I struggled very badly with sin, one of the things that perpetuated my struggle 
was that I didn't know that it was possible to live above sin. You know, I thought everybody shy is hiding something. You know, ah, ah, it's too hard. You know, and as far as Satan can keep you in that place where you do not know, then it will be impossible for you to live above sin, even though in the spirit your status has changed. So Paul says that what you're lacking is not a second baptism. What you're lacking is a knowing. Knowing this. Knowing this, that your, our old man was crucified with him. Now, he didn't also say that you should know in verse 11. He says, likewise, reckon yourselves. Now, this is not our sermon, the knowing of revelation or the reckoning of faith. But he's telling you that because of the way that your mind has been wired to live in sin, to operate by, by sin, you need, to, <laughs> you need to introduce it to its new reality. You need to quieten your soul. Quieten your soul. Have you read Psalm chapter, I think Psalm 46, right? Where David said, my soul, why are you troubled within me? This is not, this is not the arrangement of the new life. If he does not take that authority over his soul, he's going to have an experience that's not consistent with his new reality. And that's what Paul is saying, reckon yourselves. But he, you need to, the word reckon there is the word account, right? It's an accounting term. You need to take note of the fact in your spirit, in your mind, that you are dead indeed to sin. If you do not take note of it, even though you are dead in the spirit to sin, Satan will still be able to convince you to fall back into sin. And he says, do not leave yourselves empty, verse 13, but present yourselves to God. Meaning that as you empty yourself of the old life, you are supposed to practically and daily present yourself to God through prayer, through fellowship with him, through fellowship with the word of God. And that is how the process of transformation would, would take what is in the spirit and make it your practical experience. But baptism is the thing that establishes it firmly in the spirit. So one thing I want you to see from here is that Baptism deals practically with your life now. It's as though, according to the New Testament, without baptism, you cannot live free of sin. Satan has enough strings to your soul, enough legal ground to your soul, that God's arrangement for breaking those legal attachments is the principle of baptism. You see that baptism is concerned with how you live now. If you are going to die tomorrow, God doesn't need to baptize you, right? I mean, we have an example of, um, of the thief on the cross, for example, right? He was not baptized because he could, first of all, because he couldn't be baptized. If he could be baptized, then he would have been baptized, but couldn't be baptized. And secondly, even if he could be baptized, <laughs> he, was about to, he was one or two hours away from death, right? Baptism saves you now. It's important for us to realize that salvation is used in the past tense. We are saved. Salvation is also used in the present tense. We are being saved. And salvation is also used in the future tense. We shall be saved. So in the past tense, we are saved from the penalty of sin, right? Which is death. And that's what happens when we repent from dead works and we turn our faith towards God. We are justified. That's the terminology for it. In the present tense, we need to be saved from the power of sin. 
right? So salvation, um, baptism is not about eternal safety because if you make it about eternal safety, then you begin to rationalize and relativize it, right? And you begin to convince yourself that, are you saying that I will not go to heaven? If it, it was never about going to heaven, at least not as, as far as God was concerned. Unfortunately, most of our evangelistic messages have made it about that, but God is very concerned with life on earth. When the kingdom of Christ comes, it's going to be on earth. The reason why he sets us free from the enemy is so that in that freedom, we can serve him on earth. God wants to be known on earth through a holy people on earth. And baptism is God's first act in separating us from the power of sin. Right? And that's the process that the scripture calls sanctification. And sanctification is a present continuous reality. None of us ever outgrows it. But you see, we, we, are, we, we don't only need to be saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. We also need to be saved from the presence of sin. And that's what the Bible calls glorification. Right? When, when we put off this body of sin and put on the incorruptible, sin will no longer be a possibility. And part of what will make sin no longer be a possibility, like we have seen, is that God will have to judge. So before he gives you that glorious body, you will have to first judge. And so I can tell you that a time will come on this earth when, when sin in principle in action is completely missing from the picture. Right? And John tells us that anyone that has that hope purifies himself. So that hope is still to come. It is on the basis of that hope that is still to come that it is possible that in time some people can turn their back on Jesus, like we have said before. And because there is a hope of salvation that is still to come. So as we conclude, um, I would like us to look at some critical verses in the book of Acts. And because so far we focused on the teachings of Jesus, which is what we should have done. And then Paul's explanation of the idea of identification. So I want us to just read a few verses to bring all of this home before we close, okay? But I would like to pause to ask if, if there are any thoughts so far on this, any questions? So in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, this is the day of Pentecost. Peter had given his Pentecostal message, right? There's something in the chat. Um, it's powerful. Okay. Thank you. Quickly. Peter had given his Pentecostal message. So how was Peter's understanding of Pentecost? Verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were caught to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So the question is, what am I supposed to do to be saved, right? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. So this is what separates the baptism of John from the baptism that is a sacrament in Christianity, right? Is that this baptism, you are baptized into Christ. So you repent and you are baptized into Christ. It's not a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism into Christ. And so repent. So that's the first step. And of course, technically, have faith towards God, obviously, is included there. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you see that the reception of the gift of Holy Spirit 
is supposed to complete the cycle of their new birth. So that you and I, in bringing any believer to Christ, we must be diligent to ensure that there is repentance, there is the confession of faith, and that confession is followed up by baptism so that Satan loses the strings that he has over their soul. And then when you baptize, you do not leave the house empty. You fill it with the spirit. You fill it with the spirits because it's only the spirit that can produce the culture of heaven in that life. I want to show you the great commission, Mark chapter 16, that Jesus gave to his disciples. Later, verse 14, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs shall follow those who believe. In my name, they shall cast out demons. They shall speak with new tongues. They, shall, they will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay their hands. They will lay hands on the sick. And they will recover. Okay, so this is Jesus speaking, right? This is not an apostle speaking. This is not um, an explanation of the gospel. This is the author of faith himself speaking. He says that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Jesus is not mixing words here. So one thing I want you to notice is that it's not he who is baptized that will be saved. Right? Baptism cannot save anybody. Right. So this obviously tells you that infant baptism cannot save an infant. Right. In fact, whatever it is you do with infants can actually only be called baptism if there is an immersion, because this word is baptismal. So if you cannot immerse an infant, then you didn't baptize the infant. Right. And even if you did baptize the infant, that's not the basis for the infant salvation, right? Because there needs to be a believing. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, of course, Jesus now adds a clause here that, of course, it's not 100% of Christians who believe that will get the chance to be baptized. He's not referring to those who rebel against the church and refuse not to be baptized in the name of some kind of revelation they have. But... He's making, he's adding this clause for people like the thief on the cross. He says that, but he who does not believe will be condemned, right? So it is he who does not believe that will be condemned. He didn't say he who is not baptized will be condemned, right? So he's not saying that baptism is optional, but he's acknowledging the fact that baptism is a ceremony that you need certain things to be in place for it to happen. And it's not possible for all those things to be in place for baptism to happen. And so if you believe, you will not be condemned. Right? But you see, at the end of the age, Jesus is going to be the judge and he's the one who is going to know <laughs> if your reason for not being baptized was out of rebellion or was truly because there was no opportunity. Because in the book of Acts, there was a sense of urgency about baptism. Right. After Philip spoke to the Ethiopian eunuch, he said, what are we waiting for? Here is water. Baptize me. Because he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Now, notice that the signs that Jesus speaks of 
are supposed to come after baptism, especially the sign of speaking with new tongues. So this is something that is important to note. Of course, in the book of Acts, we see instances where, where people were filled with the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. But most of the other times, what we see is that there, needs, that there first needs to be baptism, and then they can be filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Okay. The, I think we're all familiar with Acts chapter 8, right, which is the story of um, Peter and, no, Acts chapter 10, which is the story of, of um, Cornelius. So we're not going to touch that. But let's conclude with Acts chapter 19, which we looked at very briefly. So, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much head <laughs> as whether there is the Holy Spirit. So notice the culture of the first apostles that Paul's assumption was that they are receiving, receiving the Holy Spirit was supposed to be part of their new birth, was supposed to be part of their believing. And they said, oh, wow, we didn't even hear that there was such a thing called Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, into what then were you baptized? So they said unto him, into John's baptism. And he said, John's baptism was right. John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ. When they heard this, that John's baptism was only a baptism unto repentance, they were baptized into Christ. Baptism is always into Christ because you are identifying with Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Yeah. So this is where we are going to stop for tonight. On the topic of baptisms, we're only able to look at the baptism of water. But I hope that um, there's clarity for us from the few things that we have looked at together and that we are able to go forward from here and take whatever next steps that the Holy Spirit will impress on our hearts. If you've led a believer to Christ and you have overlooked the importance of baptism, it's likely that Satan still has a hold on their life because that was the case with, with Israel when they left Egypt. Pharaoh continued to follow them to follow them until they were baptized into Moses. They were baptized through the Red Sea. And once they went on the other side of the Red Sea, the pursuit of Egypt ended once and for all. Right? It, it's, a, it's a material object, it's a material action with, with, with grave spiritual implication. And it's my prayer that the Spirit of God will lead us into the right next steps and will produce the fruits of those steps in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.